Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clutch. This is Marianne Russo. I want to say hello to my co-hosts tonight on Tweet Chat, Mae Wilkinson and Chuck Wally. If you have a teen, you are going to need to listen to this interview. Tonight, my guests are Dr. Barbara Greenberg and Dr. Jennifer Powell-Lunder, and they are the authors of Teenage as a Second Language, A Parent's Guide to Becoming Bilingual. It is by far one of the best sites I have found on the Internet for parenting a teenager, and we are going to go into a lot of different issues that a lot of us are dealing with. So welcome. How are you? Great, and I just want to mention this is Jennifer, and actually... um Barbara is not going to be with us tonight, but I am so excited to answer all the questions and talk a little bit about the most important teen topics that we talk about on our site. Okay, and you know your site is talkingteenage.com, and it is fantastic. The blog Thank is fantastic. You. It really, really is. I mean, you know, I, I think a lot of parents. I have a daughter, 25, and I have daughters 17 and 15, and I can tell you that. Just the difference of those seven or eight years has been huge. There is such a difference in the way that parents are parenting teens over the past five years that I think it's taken a lot of parents by surprise. So um, why don't we start off with, I mean, the book is great, too. Um, You know, because I think a lot of times, you know, we look at our kids and they're, they're like aliens and they look at us like we have ten heads. So, you know, what does it mean to talk teenage? Well, you know, what Talking Teenage is all about is the idea behind it is not that it's a slang or a different language. What it's all about is that you're talking in the same words, but what it means to teens is very, very different. So to give you a a really good example, um, you know, a lot of times we use sarcasm, and we don't really think anything of it. But when you use sarcasm with your teens, especially during emotionally emotional moments, they can take it literally. Now, that would never really dawn on us. But the best example I can give you is if a teen is doing something and a parent says, you know, don't do that, and the teen says, you know, answers back in maybe, you know, a sassy or emotional manner, and then the parents say, fine, you don't like it here, go live someplace else. And a teen will pick themselves up and start walking towards the door. And then we all know what a parent says. Right. Where do you think you're going? <laughs> right. And the teen says, you just told me to leave, you know. And the thing is, there's even though they may not, they may know that they're not being kicked out of the house, there is this feeling that there's a kernel of truth in there. So right. that's kind of the concept behind talking teenage, that it's just that, we don't always know what they're saying. And when we wrote the book, we wrote it because we used to sit, um, meet on Sundays and kind of chat as professionals and we're also best friends about things that were going on, you know, with the teens that we both worked with. And the thing that we came up with is that, you know, parents love their kids. That's obvious. And teens love and want to be with their parents, which I know is sometimes surprising to parents but they're not always speaking the same language. Right. You know, and without that communication, it makes it difficult. So although we say the book is written by us, to be honest with you, it's really written by all the teens with whom, you know, we've had the pleasure of working with because they filled us in, you know, by we asked, you you know, what does it mean? I'm sorry. You know, the hormones play a role, too, because, I mean, you know, these kids yes. are overreacting. Their hormones are going crazy, and it's key for the parents not to overreact. You know, they really need to, to set the stage in the tween years. Oh, my God. I mean, that's that's really tough. Oh, you hit the nail on the head. So it's not what you say. It's how you say it. Right. And what we always say is that the new cool parent is calm, cool, and collected because that really matters. How you deliver what you have to say just can change the entire meaning of the conversation. You know, we all know that anger begets anger, anxiety begets anxiety. So the calmer you can be, you know, you are your child's rock star. No matter what age they are, they look so up to you. And the truth is that we all learn the most through modeled behavior. So how you act and react is really how your kids learn from you. And especially Absolutely. when they're teens. 
And the way you treat other people too, you know. I yes. mean, if you know you're dramatic and you're talking behind your friends' backs, and right. you know you're you're commenting on how so and so's you know shoes didn't go with the dress. I mean, the kids are going to pick this up. You know. Oh, it's so true. And it, for and a good example of that is you know parents who say you know my my children don't confide in me. And one of the things we tell parents to be mindful of is well, you have to think about why that may be. One reason may be. Because of what you just said, that you know, you they overhear you talking about what somebody else said. But sometimes it could be that they've told you something, and then they overhear you on the phone with your best friend, retelling what was just told to you. So you always have to be really aware of you know their presence, number one, and also that you are you know practicing what you preach and and putting out the um, signals that you want them to read so that they'll act the same way. You know, and I found with my daughters, you know, as I said, I have three daughters, um, you know, it's really, I I think you have to really establish trust, you know, with your kids. And that's sometimes really hard when you're parenting a teen. I mean, this goes for boys and girls. But, you know, how do you feel about, you know, like I know that I've always told my kids, if you're ever at a party and somebody's drinking or somebody's doing something and you're feeling uncomfortable, call me. You're not going to get in trouble, you know. Yep. Don't get in the car with them. But, you know, there has to be a trust that you're not going to embarrass them and that they're not going to be punished for telling you the truth. I mean, that's what I've done with my children, you know. That's that's exactly that's exactly right, and that's what we say. So the rule of thumb is this, is that, you know, what we recommend especially is code words, you know, and a lot of people use this. So coming up with one word that's like a 911, whether it's yep. text or call, you know that that means you have to show up. And the rules behind that word or whatever it is mean that no questions asked that day. So when you show up, you cannot say anything about what's going on, you know, in a negative way, you know, like if they're drinking, oh, why are you drinking? Because you you just said it before. The point is that you want to be the parent that gets called. You do not want to have, you know, your... your, um, daughter or son's friend's parent be the one that gets called. And if you don't react in that moment except with care and calmly, then you will definitely be called in the future. Now, certainly that doesn't mean you don't address the topic. At a calm time, you know, hopefully the next day, you sit your kid down and you say, look, you know, we got to talk about what happened, Um, you know, and have a rational discussion. And if they kind of put you off, then you should empower them and say, look, we have to talk about this. Why don't you tell me a time, you know, today that's going to work for you because I can see that you don't want to talk about this right now and hold them to that time. But that way you're letting them really have the decision of when you're going to talk about it and it gives them time to think about what they want to say. And how do you how do you I mean I've been in this position where um you know it, it always just seemed that my daughter's friends would come to me if they had a problem. Yes. Or if they've gotten themselves in trouble or done something That's great. stupid. Oh yeah, well yeah, it's great. But Except it puts you in a tough. It, it puts me in an awkward position. So you know, I mean, it obviously depending on the safety of the child. But you know, how how should a parent do that? Because you don't want to ruin the trust of your child. Um, but yet, yeah, you do have a responsibility as a parent to inform another parent if their their child's you know doing something that's not safe. Well, that's ultimately what it comes down to, is it comes down to the safety question. And if it is something, a behavior that is, um, you know, going to affect the child's safety, then it is a responsibility. Now, the difficulty that you may face is that different parents react different ways. So some parents, if you call them up and tell them, you know, the majority of parents will thank you. But sometimes that's not the case. Um, you know, and I can tell you what um, what I recommend definitely is that definitely speak with all your friends for sure and just make an agreement that everybody will call each other should any information come to them. And also let the kids know that that's kind of what the agreement is among all of you. Now, if it's a child, you know, who you don't know the parents so well and you still feel it's a safety issue, you know, you're always better safe than sorry because at the end of the day, it's okay if they're upset with you. 
Right. I mean, if it was my kid, I'd want to know, you know. Exactly. And, you know, I can tell you in my work every day, there there are times I have to tell kids stuff that they don't want to hear. And my response to them is, look, so sue me that I care. You know what I mean? And, I, you know, I tell parents, say to them, look, I care about you. And if that's a crime, I'm sorry, but I'm your parent. Because at the end of the day, kids want structure, rules, and they want their parents to act like parents, and they want and other parents it. to act like exactly. parents. Exactly, and that's what I love about you know talking teenage, because you're. It, it's not like talking teenage is you're going to be your teen's friend. Right. Talking teenage is really learning how to understand each other and communicate, and there's a very big difference. And I think that's where some parents make the mistake is they feel like, you know, they have to be the cool mom, you know, using all the, you know, acronyms and everything else. And, you know, that's not talking teenage, you know. No, and it's, you know, we, our book is research-based, so, you know, it's also based on our own experiences. But I'll tell you, all the teens we spoke with and all the research backs the same thing, that they don't want you to act that way. No. You know, right. you know in fact, there's a whole section of the book that we talk about things that you can wear, and things you should not wear, and we kind of do it in a joking manner, but it's really serious. Because Absolutely. Because they want you to be a mom or a dad. You, you know, you can be cool with your own friends. You know, the other thing is um, sharing information with them, asking them to be your confidant. And what all research indicates is that your kids don't want to be your confidant. You mean the parents and, confiding in the children? Yes, and you see this especially in um, single-parent homes. That's what the research okay. indicates, you know, where kids get taken in into this role, you know, and what we say in the book is you got to find your own support network because it does it, – kids do not want to hear your secrets. They don't want to know because that's not who you are to them, you know, nor do they want you to – comment on their secrets. So, for example, if you're monitoring their uh, social media, you know, uh, their texts, their Facebook, um, the rule of thumb that's very important is that you're monitoring for safety. Even if they, you know, they should know that you're monitoring, but anything they say, you should really um, not comment on it because your goal isn't to be up on the greatest gossip in the class. Right. It's just to make sure that they're acting responsibly. Well, you know, one of the rules in my house is if I don't have your password, you don't have an account. Right, right. It's that and simple. that's the best way to go. One of the And you know, um, and it's not like I'm going to be on there stalking you. No. But you know, I think that parents, I mean, listen, social media has changed the world of parenting. Definitely. Social media, I mean, for all of its benefits and God knows I take advantage of it, it can be such a detriment. It the cyberbullying Mm-hmm. And the smut lists and everything that's going on can really put a teen into crisis. So, I mean, if you have a, a teen and, you know, they're acting differently, I'm going right to the Internet to see what's going on because, you know, pretty much they have their life on there. And and the truth is not only are you going there, but the colleges that they're looking oh, at are absolutely. going there. I mean, everybody's going there. You, you know, it's it's not private. It It, it isn't. In fact, you know, we do a... Um, a tip of the day, what we call teen talk tip of the day, that we tweet and we put on Facebook. And today what it was is that you have to remind your teens that the Internet is not private. It just isn't. Um, You know, and in some ways it's interesting because we have more access to what our kids are doing in some ways than our parents ever did of us. I mean, back in the day we only had landlines. And unless your parents were listening in on the other end, they really didn't have a clue. It was a very different world. It's a very different world. It's scary. I mean, it's scary. And, um, you know, because, you know, well, we'll go into this later, but the whole mindset of the generation has changed. But, um, you know, what do you find the differences are between the male teens and the female teens as far as the crises that they get themselves into? and the different um, issues that arise for the parents. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, on surface it looks like there's a lot, there is a great difference. I will tell you overall, the differences are not as great. The overwhelming difference that's been talked about a lot is the way um, males and females, you know, handle social situations. So 
what we know from developmental theory really is that you know boys men are bait, you know are judged on their physical prowess and females tend to focus on relations so we talk a lot about how girls you have to be concerned about what we call relational aggression aka mean girl stuff mm-hmm. whereas boys it's more the physical stuff although i will tell you that the issues that come up um there's not an issue that you can raise that's not being evened out. For example, traditionally we've heard that eating disorders have been um, females. Um, And definitely overwhelmingly in the statistics they still are, but males are catching up. And And with cutting and self-harm. I was going to say cutting, the same thing. And um, it's really, you know, the big question is is that, that they were doing it already and nobody knew. Or is it that, you know, now all of a sudden they're doing these new behaviors? The true belief is that they've been doing it all along, but it was more acceptable for a female to have an eating disorder because, you know, females were so focused on appearance and less acceptable for males. So the feeling is that actually the prevalence probably was definitely more for eating disorders for females overall, but it was much higher for males than we ever realized. Well, what do you think has changed that is pushing the teen generation um, to be struggling, to have so much anxiety? Because, I mean, I'm telling you, these kids are a mess. They are so anxious and so stressed out compared to past generations. Well, part of it, you know, we talk about technology. So technology is positive and negative. And what we know is that they're dealing with new new stresses that they've never had to deal with before because we live in such a connected world now. Um, And a bunch of very good things have created a lot more stress. So, for example, going to college. The competition to get into college has increased overwhelmingly, and it started with the baby boomers. Um, You know, and each year it's gotten greater and greater. They say that in the year 2017, it will be one of the most competitive years to get into college. Now, the reason for that is that's the year that the 2000 babies were born. Um, You know, we know that there was a big, um, you know, uh, census went way up because a lot of people wanted to have 2000 babies. But that's one of the reasons. So we have these areas that are good. So education, that's great. But now there's more competition. Um, You know, being connected, being in communication, it's a lot more pressure because you feel like you have to do everything in real time. Whereas before we had this technology, you had time to get through. And I think that's where a lot of the pressure is coming from. What we do know that's very interesting is that research indicates that as a result of technology getting better and better, kids are actually developing coping skills to manage all of this extra stress. And there definitely is more stress. So, for example, you know, um, being up to date with texting or IMing, kids have developed strategies if they can't answer in real time, such as using um, away messages or they'll say that they're in a bad cell zone or, um, you know, different other, you know, strategies that they can manage this. The other thing is, you know, we talk about the demand of who you're connected to. You know, so I always joke when I do talks, I always tell parents, you know, don't worry about the fact that your kids have about 5,000 names on their cell phone and Facebook. (laughs) And you don't know who half these people are. I always say, neither do your kids. Neither do the kids, exactly. It's just a status thing. But, you know, I have to say that the the non-face-to-face interaction because of the Internet really is disinhibiting. Yes. And it gives these kids a bravado to be very cruel. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's so instantaneous that, that kids don't have time to think before they act. It, exactly. And, you know, and that's part of the issue, too, is is that when we talk about cyberbullying, and, and the definition of bullying itself is with malice intent. And right. I think that we've taken the term and used it far loosely than it's it was – it originally was, and, and the reason I say this is that if you talk to kids who are quote unquote, who have cyber bullied, they don't even realize that they've done that. They don't. 
embrace really? it as it's funny, it's a joke. Yeah, it's really amazing because, you know, and this I've learned from working with the kids and then watching the research. So I'm not saying that there aren't instances where there are definitely cyber bullies out there going after people because they know they're anonymous. That is right. definitely happening. But, you, you know, there have been a lot of suicides, for example, connected to kids who are quote-unquote bullied. Um, and, you know, They've done interviews with some of the kids who afterwards felt, you know, absolutely horrible. Right. And right. some of them have said, you know, I it was a joke. And I you know, a lot of times it that way. And a lot of times I think that, you know, kids confide in each other online and, you know, I, I see it all the time with these kids. <clears throat> they'll get an I am and then they'll paste it and they'll show it to their friends and before you know it, there's a hundred kids that have seen this private message that, you know, in, and and as, as insignificant as it seems for a teenager, it's not insignificant. No, not at all. Because and the reason is because they developmentally there's this concept called imaginary audience where they believe that they are always on stage. And you know, for humans, I think the two hardest emotions for any of us to manage are embarrassment and shame, right. and that is what those things produce. So if things are being pasted all over the place they're completely mortified. You, you know, and this is the other issue that we, we talk a lot about is sexting because... Right, that's where I was headed. Kids don't even realize that they're engaging in sexting or, you know, a typical situation. What they don't realize is that every single URL lasts forever. Yes. They don't understand this concept that it doesn't, just because it's off the screen, if somebody's taken it, it, it exists for, however, for eternity, theoretically. And if, you know, sexting often starts out innocent as a flirting or even to, you know, kids going out with each other, sending right. these messages back and forth. The problem is if they break up, absolutely, and they're so young. still exist. Exactly. Or, you know, kids never erase stuff out of their phones. If somebody gets a hold of the phone and they think it's hysterical, there you go. Right. You know, and, you know so but we, it goes a, it goes a step beyond because it, what really has me bothered about what I'm seeing in this generation, this group, is that the girls are degrading themselves. Yeah. The boys. I, I'm talking about the rainbow parties. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm talking about um, you know incidents where you know girls are, are giving oral sex to these yep. boys at like seventh grade, eighth grade, sixth grade, and they're not doing it in private, which would be inappropriate enough. But they're doing it with being surrounded by other kids watching. Yeah, I think. And, yeah, and, and I what, think a lot. What is going on with that? I mean, well, what is I, happening? I think a lot of what's happened is that you know, um, if you turn on the television and watch some of the, the the stations that are dedicated to teens and tweens. Absolutely. It's unbelievable. And I'm I glad think you said that because when I get say that say that I get yelled at. So I'll keep talking. <laughs> no, there no, really. I mean even 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 Disney has some shows where they show loose boundaries. You know, um some of the most innocent shows. I can't begin to tell you how many parents have come to me and said you know, there's all this sexual innuendo. There's also, you know, continuous representation of kids treating their parents disrespectfully. You know, and this is like the norm. So I think it, it jumps and leaves and bounds because what you have is um, the media out there is really encouraging um, and pushing the boundaries. And I think that we're sending these messages. Kids at that age don't even really understand what the concept of sexuality is. You know, these tweens, and there are so many instances of these um, middle school kids engaging in these types of sexualized behaviors. Right. You, you know, what they know is that it makes them more popular with the boys, the boys, you know, obviously because the boys feel good. And it's so accepted. It's kind of like, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, it's it's like when you have group think, which is when you have a bunch of people, it's, it's, a, it's a you know a concept, a psychological concept and a sociological concept where you have a bunch of people in a meeting and one person comes up with a bad idea, but everybody jumps around it and the entire group can have what we call group think. That's kind of what's going out on, 
on out there is that you have these kids who are encouraging each other and making these things seem okay. And it results in no boundaries. And part of this is that, you know, society as a whole, we've really, the boundaries aren't as firm as they used to be because, as you said earlier, people, parents, you know, I'm not saying all parents, we all care about our kids, but I think people are afraid to set boundaries, set limits. You know, they don't want their kids to be mad at them. They don't want this. They don't want that. I know. And that's a problem, and that sets yeah. up a dynamic of permissiveness. Well, how do parents deal with this? How does a, you know, a parent speak to their son about how, you know, that it's it's just not the right thing to do. That it's you know you're degrading the girl. That it's you know you're degrading yourself. How does a parent speak to to a daughter? I mean, I know that I had dinner um, the other night with a teacher, and uh, she was telling me that she was mortified to hear that, um, you know, this had happened with several of um, her students. Um, at a party, and actually it was brought to her attention because some of the boys who were at the party um, told the guidance counselor they weren't participants in the act, but they had went to the guidance. Now, what responsibility is it of the school if something like this happens out of the school? That's a really tough question, and I will tell you there are lawsuits out there about, you know, related to cyberbullying, and really case law is going to dictate because, you know, it's unclear where it's going to end up. I think the guidance counselor obviously has a responsibility because it's a safety issue to let the parents of the kids involved know, um, you know, as a mandated reporter. But, um, you know, I think that also what kids, you know, what teenagers and tweens are managing is this developmental concept called the illusion of invulnerability. And it's this belief that bad things never happen to them. And that contributes to some of this behavior that they engage in. And what I mean by that is that if they heard that their best friend was engaged in that behavior, nine chances out of ten they would, you know, be really upset and go to their friends and say, you really shouldn't do this but it's because it's going to have an impact. But when they're engaging, it the rules don't apply that way. And that's mm-hmm. part of the reason why this stuff can perpetuate. Because it's not, when you're in it, it's this belief that nothing bad is going to happen. You know, but you you have the insight. So it's not about abstract thinking. You have the insight to see if your best friend is doing this that they shouldn't be. But when right. you're in it yourself. So all these kind of concepts of natural development contribute to some of these bad choices because, you know, they're reinforced by what the media, you know, is showing kids. And so do you just, think that development influences this early parenting, or is this just going to be the luck of the draw with the kids that your your, your child hangs out with? No. And what do you do if you, know you don't what? like your the kid, kids your, your teen is hanging out with? Well, really, what we know about that is that kids tend to hang out with, um, and this is in general, the kids that your kids will be attracted to are ones that have simil- seemingly similar values as you have taught your child. So parents have far more influence over their kids um, in picking peers than they realize. Um, So overall, kids will be attracted to similar kids, you know, that have been taught the same things they have. Certainly peers have the influence. I mean, there's no question about it. I'm not saying that they're always going to find, you know, friends doing the same thing. But you know, and they certainly can be coerced in, but really there's this belief that nothing, you know, there's going to be no re- problem. You know, nothing's right. going to come back to hurt them as a result of doing some of these things. Um, you know, because everybody at the party was doing it. You, you know, it's not a big deal. And that's why I think, you know, what's important is I love that these kids went to the guidance counselor. Yeah, they were very upset. That's where the answer lies, is in teaching our kids to step up and empower themselves to say, you know what, this isn't okay, you know, and that's what Well, we now, what does a parent do if they see their, their child, their teen, heading into a group that they know is going to be a problem, whether it be drugs or sex or whatever the case may be? I mean, really, what, how does a parent control that? How does a parent communic- learn to communicate with their teens without, you know, seeming like they're, you know, hitting them with a club? 
Well, it's really, you know, about having interactive conversations. So, you know, there's we we call the term conversation openers. So there's always an opportunity. So, for example, you know, talking about this party, it would be like sitting down with your teen and saying, oh, did you hear about this thing at the school? You know, it was all over. What do you think about that? And the key is to empower your kids to give their opinion and really listen to what they're saying. Instead of going to them going, you better never do that. Right. Instead, you give them the role. So it's how you approach it with them and, you know, reinforcing the things that they say that, you know, are what you would hope they would say, like, oh, I can't believe it, you, you know, listening to how they think about it. Because when you ask them for an opinion, there's nothing better that makes them realize that what they have to say is worth something. Now, that being said, it's also a red flag in itself if you have a teen who's heading in the direction of those friends because there's right. a reason for that. And that in itself is a big old red flag. And I think as parents, you know, we talk in the book a lot about this thing called the ESP factor, which is very dangerous. It's like when your kid is really young and you know what they're going to do and you stop right. them. And what happens is as kids get older, they believe that their parents always know what they're thinking, feeling, and doing. And they don't. And that's a problem because your kids actually expect you to stop them and, you know, step in. And sometimes due to denial, oh, not my kid, or sometimes just due to not knowing what to do, parents aren't sure what to do, whether they should jump in. And when you feel that feeling in your gut, you got to listen to it because nobody knows your kid better than you usually. You know, if you're engaged, you know, if you're not a disengaged parent, which most of us aren't. You know, like I tell the parents all the time, you need to do a lot more listening and a lot less talking, (laughs) you know. Exactly. (laughs) That's the key is listening to what they have to say and really listening to them. Because you know what happens so commonly? If if, If kids say something that we don't like to hear, a lot of times parents will cut them off and what we recommend is don't cut them off. If you hear them telling a story of their friend engaged in activity that was really, you know, not so wonderful, don't cut them off. You know, don't go, oh, my goodness, I can't believe that. Keep your mouth quiet. Right. Because you're going to miss the most important information. And sending, And you also send them the message that there are certain topics they are not supposed to talk about with you. Right. So, and, I mean, that's that's like, the worst thing you can do. Exactly. It really is. You know, I used to try to spin it, you know, because, you know, back then I could. Um, you know, and I used to try to be like, oh, so, you know, so-and-so, you know, uh, Susie, you know, what, what do you like about her? You know, what do you think is fun about her? To try to see what the interest was. Right. And that right. I really wasn't crazy about. Instead right. of saying, you know, I really don't like Susie. And I don't think right. you should hang out with Susie. I would let her talk, and then she would always speak. I said, yeah, you know, she really is like a pain in the neck. You know? Exactly, so though. It's better to get let them figure it out. Um, we have um, a caller here, so let's take a call, and then I have one more question for you before we finish oh, sure. the interview. Oh, we have a few callers. Hi, uh, area code 914. Let's try this one. <laughs> Hi, area code 203. Are you on the air? Yes. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm terrific. Do you have a question? Yeah, yeah. I, I did read the book, and I really, really liked it a lot. Thank you, Dr. Powellunder. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, thank you. Um, well, I have two teenage girls, and this is a problem that I'm running into you know, these girls have a very active social life, and I have a Facebook, too, and, I'm, and they don't want me to friend them, and I'm really wondering if I should be concerned about that. Do you have access to their Facebook accounts? No. No, I don't. You don't. Well, mm-hmm. the thing you got to remember is, you just said you have an active social life. So if you friend them, mm-hmm. then they're going to have access to your account too, and that's something you have to remember. Okay. So the best way to monitor is 
you know, either to have them be on Facebook while you're there Mm -hmm. and, you know, just tell them that you're randomly going to check because the computer should be in a common area. Mm -hmm. Like not in their bedrooms? Right, right, not in the bedroom. And the other thing is that the best way to do it is to tell them, you know, to get their passwords and just say, look, you know, you want to be on this on Facebook, then you need to let me have your passwords and I'm going to be randomly checking it. And, you know, I'm not going to talk about what's going on in your social life. I just want to make sure that everything that you're involved in is safe. Okay. I think I can do that. Thank you. Sure. Thank you for calling. Dr. Lunder, yeah. um, before, call her before you hang up. Um, what do you think about spyware? You know, I, I think that spyware is great, but I do believe that you need to let your kids know that you have spyware. And I know that sounds a little, you know, like crazy. Yeah, it sounds but, self-defeating, yeah. But But it isn't, because this is the thing, is that you don't want to have, if you set up a dynamic of secrets, then it sends a bad message. And the reason is this, is that you run the risk of, and, and I've worked with families where this has actually happened, um, where they've been checking all the texts, checking all the emails, but they did not tell their kids. And then something happened, and they were in a real bind. Because, of course, they had to approach it with their kids, but guess what their kids wanted to focus on? Besides, they didn't want anything to do with the topic because all the kids would talk about is how they're, privacy was invaded. True. Yeah, that's true. And they but I think sometimes down. it's sometimes in a different situation. Um you know, I think if you have a child that's all of a sudden very depressed, um if you have a child that's you know is 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 in trouble, that is struggling, um that's not communicating. I mean, I think sometimes it's a great tool for parents to to see really how, how you know how um how difficult the life is for their teen. I don't disagree. I just think, like I said, um, you know, you we really believe in the need to tell kids. Because, you know, kids right. forget. I mean, like I was saying before with the texts, you, you know, I I can tell you from my own experience that I read every single text um, of my tween. I have a tween, and, and definitely we're reading all the texts. But the rule is that we cannot say anything unless there's some safety issue, which Thank goodness there hasn't been. Right. But And right. there are times where social situations have come up, and, and I laugh because my husband will say to me, well, shouldn't we say something to her? And I'm like, no, we can't. They will work it out. You know, when you see some of the mean girl stuff, nothing really bad, right. But I mean, actually. One, one, right. I mean, you know, that stuff is the typical teen stuff. I'm talking about when children are suicidal. But, but, when but it's really bad. Now, Paula, let me just ask you, what are the ages of um, your kids? I, your daughter. I, Fifteen? Thirteen is fifteen, yeah. Okay, yeah. so that's considered tweens, right, Dr. Dr. Well, uh, the 13-year-old would be the beginning of a teen, actually. Oh, okay. And because um, we say around 12 is the beginning of teen, and 15 is definitely a teen. But, but that's where it's really important when you have a child who is struggling and depressed to let them know that you're watching because right. that's what they want to know. Right, I mean, you know, I run an inpatient uh, unit at a private psychiatric hospital, so the kids I work with in, you know, um, in that area of my work are kids who are, you know, in crisis, acute care. Right. And, you know, invariably, so many times they are, they've reached the point where they're doing what we call anteing up. Um, you know, they, they do some really serious, scary stuff. And you know, um, sometimes it is, it's it's very scary. Yeah, it really and is. what I will tell you is, in my heart of hearts, I don't really believe that many of them really wanted to end their lives. But what I do believe is that they didn't know how else to scream loud enough so that somebody would hear them. Right. Well, caller, I appreciate you for calling in. Do you have any other questions before I, I no, take you off the air? I really appreciate that advice. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling in. Uh, you know, I wanted to go into, actually, that's how I wanted to um, end the interview, is I wanted to talk about what the signs are um, in a teen that could be in a crisis or in trouble. Sure. So, really, the, it's very important to know that you can't take one sign in isolation. But the signs are changes in behavior, and those behaviors are, um, for example, sleeping. Sleeping too much, sleeping too little. 
um, than what you're used to seeing your child, you know, do. Um, extreme changes in appearance, especially if they're starting not to care about themselves, you know, if they're not attending to their hygiene, you know, um, that's certainly a red flag. Sometimes it's, you know, kids are, teenagers and tweens even, are at the point where they're trying on different identities. So that in itself is not something to be alarmed at unless it's so extreme. Um, you know, one day they're, um, you know, the star athlete that looks like they came out of the yellow bean catalog and the next day they're dressed all in black and, you know, barely speaking. You want to kind of look into that. Um, but in isolation, I'm not, you know, that might not mean anything. Um, eating, eating too much, eating too little. Um, if suddenly you wake up one day and you say to yourself, I don't know any of my kids' friends anymore, that's a big red flag, especially mm -hmm. if they're, you feel like they're purposely avoiding having you see their friends. Or, for example, if they stop wanting to see their friends and they're just like blah. You know, there's a word for that, anhedonia, and what it means is lack of pleasure. So a kid who used to be really active and suddenly doesn't want to do anything. Now, you have to be careful because especially in the transition from tween to teen, kids start to shed activities and really hone in on the one or two things that they feel really confident in and really enjoy. So you have to be mindful that it could just be the natural process of them not wanting to do certain activities. That being said, if, you know, one day they're like the star on the soccer team and then all of a sudden – they don't even want to go to practice, that could be a big red flag. School right. attendance. And the teen years is when depression and a lot of other mental illnesses begin. And our Definitely. show really, um, you know, it really does, you know, we're for special needs parents. And I think that, you know, difficulty comes in of the special needs parents because our children are more sheltered than others. Definitely. Um, they lack the acquired social skills. Um, you know, there's a lot of overlapping with anxiety disorders and depression, and oftentimes it's these years. It's the 13 to 17 when these disorders really appear, and parents have to be really careful, you know, because they come on so quickly. And I think also, you know, another thing that sometimes is a red flag, not always, but, you know, you have a kid that's a, a A, B student starts failing, it, I was about it definitely that is a no that is a big red flag after actually what you, but what's important to highlight also is that so the transition from any transition so the transition from elementary school to middle school which is you know when they become tweens there's always there is often achievement loss mm -hmm. just as um the transition from middle school to high school there yes. is often um you know also achievement loss so you know but it shouldn't be like a student that was an A student suddenly drops to failing. That definitely is a big red flag. And as you said, a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of um, the mood disorders especially will come out in full force starting in adolescence. And sometimes, you know, it can be it can be really difficult to see it. So, for example, if you're talking about a kid who ends up, you know, a family um, where there is a history of, let's say, bipolar disorder, and you have a kid who suddenly starts to seem really productive, um, and that seems like a really good sign, you know, like an anxious, more depressed kid, you have to really pay attention to what you're seeing because sometimes that can be a sign that somebody is actually kicking into, um, you know, a manic phase or a hypomanic phase. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, it's just being mindful of any changes. And what I always say is you know. Parents know. I, I can't, I don't think I've ever met, I mean, I shouldn't say that. The majority of parents I meet, and again, I work, you know, during the day, I, I run an acute care facility, a, you know, a unit in a pretty big uh, psychiatric hospital. And, you know, the key thing is parents will say to me, you know, I had this feeling. But, you know, who wants to acknowledge that to themselves? Well, that's so, a big problem. You know, that because I, I really, you know, when I... um host the chats on Thursday mornings. I focus on mental illness because that's mostly, you know, my experience. Unfortunately, I'm very educated in it. And, you know, what I tell parents is, listen, if, if you see something coming, don't wait too long. I mean, you know, they, they say you give it a couple of weeks if there aren't changes, but get that child for an evaluation at a psychiatrist. And what really kills me sometimes is the stigma 
um, you know, that the parents are, you know, don't want their child diagnosed with a mental illness. They don't want their child, um, you know, on medications. And, you know, this is your child's life. So, you know, don't let stigma keep you from helping your child. Exactly. You know, and what I always say is you could set your child free. Set right. them free. I mean, there are whole books written about, you know, antidepressants. There's a reason for that. Right. You know, and you know what, it's, it's also, I think, important. I mean, I don't know if you agree with me. I know that, you know, a lot of people don't agree with me. Um, I, I don't feel it's wise to keep this a secret from the school. If you have a child that's depressed, um, that is having trouble getting out of bed, that's really struggling, I mean, this is a physical illness. I always say take the mental out of it, and it's an illness. Um, you know, I think the schools need to know that. Oh, the schools have to know, because the truth is the schools, have, you know, kids spend so much of their time in school. That is an opportunity to have eyes and ears on your your child to figure out if they're okay. So I definitely big proponents of um, not only making sure the school knows. The key is who at the school knows, and right. that's what you have to be mindful of: is finding that person. You know, whether it's the uh, guidance counselor, or the school social worker, or the school psychologist, making a point person who can really get the information for you. But it goes without saying that. Schools have to know because yeah, a lot they of parents don't agree, but it's so important. And, and, you know, and I, I think understand why parents don't agree, but in the end of the day, you can really do your child a disservice because then they feel what can often happen with kids who are struggling with serious, um, you know, mood disorders and and other, you know, with mental illness is that they they feel like they have to keep it together during the school. They feel so unsupported, right. and then they come home and they fall apart. Because they're working so hard, and it is work, you know. And, you know, it's the same thing with the arguments about medication. I mean, if your child had diabetes, would you hesitate to give them insulin? Absolutely. You know, when you look at the research and the percentages of um, people who are actually on, um, you know, medications, it's it's actually a big um, misconception. Really, there aren't especially for kids, the percentage of kids who need medication and are on it is very low percentage-wise because doctors are very conservative with it. Well, yeah, you know, it's a black box warning. I mean, it can't be, I mean, it's there for a reason. Exactly. But then again, there are some children that need it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's but, you know, definitely. I mean, the average, I mean, you know, we're talking now, we, we went on to talking about children with mental illness, which is very important because, like we said, the teen years is when it usually surfaces. Yes. But, you know, for the average teen, I mean, it, it, it's it's no picnic these days. But I have to say, I've, I always say this, when they turn like 18, 19, they're like normal human beings again. Right. They become your best friend. My daughter and I, she's like my best friend. It's the best relationship you're going to have. You know, I always say just hang on. <laughs> it's true. Well, look, they're they're looking to be independent, and your job is to encourage autonomy. And the difference between autonomy and independence is this. Independence is where you go, bye, see ya, go do it. Whereas autonomy is where you kick your kids out of the nest, but you offer guidance and support when needed. And what we want to do as parents is support autonomy so that they can develop independence. And that's the key. And that goes on into the years. Like I said, my daughter's 25. And, I mean, she went to college. I live in New York. She went to college in Manhattan. And it was the type of thing where, you know, if she had a a toothache at 2 o'clock in the morning, I was there at 2.40, you know? Right. And and that's, (laughs) look, you know what I tell, I always tell kids, when your parents aren't anxious, your life is beautiful no matter how old your parents are and how old you are. And the reason I say that is, what do parents worry about? They worry about their kids. Right. So you're, oh, if you're a kid, you're always a kid. It doesn't matter how old you are if your parents are around, unless you're at the point where you're taking care of your parents, which we know happens at the end of the life cycle. But really, I think it's always like that. You know? right. Or if you're very lucky like me and you're the sandwich generation. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I'm having a really good time. Um, so before we end the interview, um, why don't you give us one or two of your best parenting tips for to survive these teenage years? So one thing is if you want to know how your kid's day at school was, do not say to them, how was your day at school? <laughs> Instead, what you want to try is something like, 
tell me one thing that happened at school today or one funny thing that happened today, and I promise you, you will be amazed at how much more information you get from them. Because questions like that are so general, like how was your day at school, is way too loaded of a question. So specific and wait for the response. Um, the other thing I would say is that, you know, we talk so much about um, the social media and how it's so scary. You also have to be careful not to be a helicopter parent. And that means that, you know, social media works both ways and technology works both ways. So, you know, as I said before, if you're reading texts, you don't want to get involved in the gossip and the social scene. Your job is to be a parent, and that is who your kids really want you to be. And finally, I just want to say that you are your, your kid's superhero. I said this earlier. You really are, and you have to be so mindful of your own behavior because they watch you to make sure that you're practicing what you preach, and that's in all realms. The, the best example I can give is driving. So if you're somebody who is a very voice, you know, boisterous driver, don't be surprised if when your child learns how to drive, they are doing the same thing. So it starts at a very early age. You have to remember to be really aware of yourself. That's great advice. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, please follow on Twitter, follow on Facebook. Um, you know, Talking Teenage is just fantastic. I mean, you, you're very, you're great at updating uh, your blog and um, all the information. And, um, you know, get the book, Teenage Second you. Language, A Parent's Guide to Becoming Bilingual. It is fantastic. Thank so you. So again, Dr. Carol Lunder, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, you come out with another book. Come back on. Up, oh, we're we're working on it. We <laughs> Are you really? Two more coming out soon. Yeah. Terrific. Let us know. Oh, we will. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, okay. We're going to continue a discussion on teens. Um, I have a special guest on my tweet chat on Thursday. I have Ma um, Mike Domritz coming on. He is the founder and executive director of the Date Safe Project. And um, they give real solutions to parents about dealing with the topic of sex with their children. Um, they educate schools. They educate parents. And um, he is just going to be fantastic. So um, Thursday, the chat is sex and your special needs teen. Um, Wednesday night, I have Dr. Sandy Gluckman coming on. She's going to be discussing the inflammation connect connection with anxiety and ADHD, as well as advocating for your child. So um, now Monday... Um, which is tomorrow. Well, um, Pierrette and Lauren are giving a very, very important chat on water safety. Um, the number one cause of injury-related deaths in the autism community for children is drowning. So please join us on our tweet chat tomorrow with Pierrette and Lorna. And as I end the show each day, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent here on The Coffee Clutch. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you on Wednesday.